I apologize that we're getting out of order with our series on the Exodus a little bit, but we had to flop things around last week, so I appreciate you being flexible. Today we're going to be looking at the book of Job. The book of Job asks, why do innocent people suffer in God's world? What is God's role and responsibility in this? Now, these are dark and obscure questions, and therefore Job is a dark and obscure book. And so if you come to Job looking for simple answers, you'll probably leave empty-handed. My goal today is not to tell you uh, the meaning or the lesson of the book of Job. I would be skeptical of anyone who claims they can do that. My goal is to simply tell the story of the book of Job. And I think when we see that overarching story, we, we find that it's the same basic story the Bible tells over and over again. The righteous son who is rejected by men, matured through suffering, vindicated by the Father, and exalted to a position of greater glory and dominion. It's the story of Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. It's the story of Moses and of David and Elijah and Daniel. It's the story of the whole people of Israel in the Exodus and in their exile and in their restoration. And it is, of course, the story of Jesus and of his church in the New Testament. And it's the story of Job. And so as we come to Job's story today, let me pray for us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now the book of Job doesn't tell us when it was written or, or by whom. In terms of the genre of the book, it's considered wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is kingly literature. It's often composed by and for those who have some kind of kingly rule and authority to exercise. And the main character of the book, a man named Job, is a kingly figure. We are never told specifically that he was a king, but we are told at the beginning of the book that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, he has a large family, seven sons and three daughters, ten children total, he has a vast amount of livestock, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, 10,000 plus 1,000. So all these multiples of 7 and of 10 in the Bible, these numbers symbolize a fullness of, of both quality and quantity in Job's household. So Job is a kind of king. We're also told in verse 1 that Job was a man blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, whenever you see someone described as blameless in the scriptures, you should take note because that same word is also used to describe Noah and Abraham and Jacob. And so Job is being paralleled with these men, with the great patriarchs of the people of Israel. That word, blameless, it's also related to the word used in the, sacro, uh, the sacrificial system for without blemish or spotless. 
And, and the idea has to do with that which is acceptable to God. Job was acceptable in God's sight. His life is a pleasing offering to the Lord. So Job is a blameless and an upright man, and you have to keep that fact in mind over the course of Job's 42 chapters. No matter what Job's friends say in the story, and no matter what well-intentioned interpreters and preachers may say about Job, the author of the book consistently presents Job as a blameless man all the way through. In fact, the whole dilemma of the book depends on that fact. It depends on the fact that Job is a righteous man. It's his righteousness which makes his, such, uh, his suffering such a conundrum for everyone involved. And Job chapter 1, verse 6, then presents us a scene that is unique in the Bible. What we see here is a, a heavenly council meeting. And it's important that we point out here that the man, Job, is not present at this meeting. He doesn't know any of this is happening. And so while Job is on earth going about his business, there's a meeting in the heavenly courtroom. Job chapter 1, verse 6 tells us, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, who are these sons of God? Well, the traditional understanding is that these are angels. And they've been summoned to the heavenly king's court. And we are told Satan also came among them. Now, Satan is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan. And it's actually not a name, it's a, it's a title. In Hebrew, Ha-Satan literally means the accuser or the adversary. And that's the role that he plays, as we'll see in this heavenly courtroom. He's like uh, the attorney for the prosecution. He's accusing the defendants of crimes. So verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now note this, it is the Lord who singles out Job, isn't it? Points him out to Satan. And look at how the Lord describes Job. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, that's the same words that the narrator used to describe Job in verse 1. And now we see it confirmed by the lips of God himself a double witness to the righteousness of Job. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now, in this accusation, Satan is accusing both Job and God, isn't he? Neither of them is truly blameless, he says. He accuses God of being dishonest. Satan says God has essentially bribed Job with his favor. If God were to actually allow Job to suffer, 
Job would change his tune and the whole sham would be revealed, Satan says. So suddenly we find both God and Job are on trial. How will God respond to this accusation? Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here's one of the mysteries of the book of Job. Why does God concede to Satan's challenge? I mean, why even give Satan the time of day? You're the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. Who cares what Satan says? He's the father of lies, right? Why stoop to his game? Now, the author of Job doesn't address that question. We're simply told that God takes up the gauntlet to vindicate his name, to vindicate Job's name, but as we will see, it's all going to come at Job's expense. Verses 13 and following tell us what happens to Job as a result of God releasing Satan. A servant comes to Job and tells him that Sabaean marauders fell upon his flocks in the field, stealing his oxen and donkeys and killing all of his servants, except this one servant who has escaped with the news. As this message is being delivered, another servant arrives and tells Job, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Note, it's God's hand behind this fire. While that servant is still speaking, another servant comes and tells Job that a Chaldean raiding party has taken all his camels and killed the servants who were with them. And while he was still speaking, another servant comes and says, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now just remember, it's a whirlwind that comes and crushes the children of Job. Now within a matter of moments, Job learns all his possessions have been taken from him. All his wealth, all his livelihood is gone. And on top of that, most of his household and all seven of his children are dead, his whole life shattered in an instant. Unimaginable calamity. Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a remarkable response, isn't it? Unfathomable, really. Job immediately enters into the the rituals of mourning in his culture, and yet in his mourning, he is also worshiping the Lord, blessing his name. This is the faithfulness of Job. Now, I want you to remember this crucial point. Job was not present for that heavenly council meeting. Job has no knowledge of the contest between God and Satan. But Job does attribute all of this to the hand of the Lord. 
It is the Lord who gave all of this. And it is the Lord who has taken it away. And Job blesses his name. Now surely, this response, that settles the question between God and Satan, doesn't it? I mean, Job has shown his faithfulness. His faithfulness is not dependent on the health and wealth God has given. His piety is not predicated upon his prosperity. His faith is not contingent even on the security of his family. In case there is any doubt, the text specifically says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job doesn't accuse God. So the point's settled, right? Satan's accusations have been proven baseless. God and Job have been vindicated. The trial should be over. Then we have chapter 2. Another heavenly counsel is called, and that same dialogue between God and Satan is repeated. And God is still singing Job's praises. Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity or his blamelessness although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. All right, Satan might have lost the first round, but he's going to double down. That first test didn't go far enough, God. Unfortunately for Job, God picks up the gauntlet once again. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity, your blamelessness? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, incredibly, Job's response is the same as in chapter 1. Despite losing all he had and now losing his own health, he refuses to do what Satan was certain he would do, what his wife expects him to do. He refuses to curse God. And so we have now a double witness to the faithfulness of Job. Now, now strangely, we never see uh, the follow-up meeting of the heavenly council. Satan never appears again in the book of Job. So what was the final verdict? Was God vindicated? Was Satan cast out? We're never told. But Job is told even less. Remember, Job is not aware that there was a heavenly trial. Job was judged in absentia. And now Job is literally left in the dust. He remains penniless, childless, and afflicted by terrible disease. Like the pottery shards in his hand, Job's life is shattered beyond repair. And he has no idea why. 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Why would God allow such terrible calamity to fall upon his most beloved and righteous son? But at least Job is not alone in his mourning. Job 2, verse 11 says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now we see Job through his friend's eyes, and we begin to grasp the depth of his suffering. They are astonished at him. His appearance so marred beyond human semblance, he has become unrecognizable to his friends. Job is no longer himself. He is unmade. And his friends enter into Job's suffering as far as they are able, taking his torn robes, taking his sprinkled dust upon themselves, submitting to the death-like sentence which has consumed Job. They do this for seven days, a fullness of mourning, a week of living death in solidarity with the sufferer. It's probably the wisest thing Job's friends do in this book. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, the apostle tells us. Enter into the suffering and bear one another's burdens. But now at this point, the book of Job transitions uh, from, from narrative, from a story, into poetry. And the next 39 chapters of Job are taken up with a poetic dialogue, uh, largely between Job and his three friends. Now, of course, we couldn't cover all 39 chapters today, so we're just going to look at the major themes that keep being repeated in this dialogue of the friends. After seven days of mourning, it is Job who breaks the silence, Job 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. This is where Job is at. He loathes his life. As it is, stripped of all that brought him purpose and joy. And Job is going to express that sentiment many times over in this book. Better to never have been born than to live a life of unrelenting loss and pain. This is Job's lament. And his friend, Eliphaz the Temanite, is the first comforter to respond. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says... If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. Well, that's pretty good so far, right? He's, apparently, Job has been a comforter to others in their suffering, and Eliphaz points this out. But then he continues... 
but now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and then the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Now I want you to pay careful attention to Eliphaz's critique of Job here, because it's based on a principle, isn't it? Something that he believes to always be true. What is that principle? He says, innocent people never perish. The upright are never cut off. You see that? Essentially, it is this. If you do what is right, God will bless you. If you do what is wicked, God will punish you. And here's the thing about that principle. Generally, it's true, right? I mean, the scriptures themselves present things this way all the time. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses says to the people of Israel, If you obey the commandments of the Lord, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, you shall surely perish. That's the principle that Eliphaz holds to. And actually, it's what every person in the book of Job believes. Even Job himself, right? And you and I believe it too, don't we? It's inescapable. At our core, we believe the things that happen to us are a direct result of our behavior. You reap what you sow. I remember one day, probably 10 years ago now, I was walking down the hall and I overheard the kids playing house with their dolls and things. And they kept saying over and over again, that's what happens, that's what happens, that's what happens. It, it didn't have any context, they just kept chanting that, that's what happens, that's what happens. Now why were they saying that? Because they heard Don and I saying it all the time. That's what happens when you tip your chair backwards. That's what happens when you pull your sister's hair. That's what happens when you run in the house. That's what happens. That's what happens. That's the way we look at the world, isn't it? You do what's right, things will go well for you. You do what's wrong, you will suffer. That's the only category Job's friends have for what's happening to him, and it's the only explanation they can think of. Calamity has come upon Job. Well, that's what happens when God's people sin against him. Therefore, Job must have sinned against God in some way. He must have. And so the three friends, they're really going to spend the rest of this book trying to get Job to identify and confess the sin in his life, to fess up to whatever he has done that has caused this terrible calamity. And eventually, Eliphaz is going to grow so impatient with Job that he will become the accuser. He will become the Satan accusing Job. In chapter 22, he's going to say to Job, Is not your evil abundant? Is there no end to your iniquities? For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Therefore snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you. You see, like Satan, Eliphaz has no basis for these accusations against Job. There is no evidence of these things. God himself has repeatedly told us Job is a man who turns away from evil, not a man who commits it. 
But you see, this is the only explanation that Eliphaz can comprehend. And so he begins to bear false witness against Job. Now here's another thing you have to understand about Job. Job essentially thinks in the same categories as his friends. He thinks God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. Job thinks that too, at least he used to. But you see, in his own case, Job knows that he has done nothing wrong. He has done nothing to deserve God's wrath. Now, I'm not saying he was perfect or sinless. I'm saying he's not committed some sin that has led to this calamity, right? Because we know that too, right? We have the advantage of inside information. We've heard the narrator say Job is righteous, and we've heard God say it too multiple times, and we know about that heavenly courtroom scene, about that trial. And we know that's the real explanation for what's happening to Job. God has chosen to do this to him. So we know that what we have in Job truly is a righteous person suffering terrible calamity. And Job knows that too, and that does not fit into this simple, simplistic category of divine justice that he was used to, that his friends are used to. It doesn't make sense. It seems to Job that maybe God has made a mistake. Or at worst, maybe God is committing some injustice. And so this is going to bring us to one of the other primary themes of Job's speeches in these 39 chapters of poetry. Job wants his day in court. Job wants his day in court. Job 13.3, Job proclaims, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right he talks about it as a case that he's prepared. He wants to take the stand. He wants to give his testimony. He wants to tell the truth. Job wants to be vindicated. He wants everything to know he has done nothing to deserve this suffering. There's a problem with that wish, though, isn't there? How do you approach the bench of a judge you can neither see nor hear? How do you take the stand in a courtroom you can't even find? How do you present your case in the heavenly court of the immortal, invisible God? In our Old Testament reading from this morning, Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. There, an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Job believes he would be acquitted if he could only find God, if God would only meet with him. But he knows this isn't as easy as it sounds. Job 9.32 For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. See, Job wants an arbiter then. If he can't meet with God, give me an arbiter. Give me a defense attorney. If only there was some mediator between God and man who could bring reconciliation. 
If only there was one who could plead on Job's half before the heavenly court, whose prayers would save Job from condemnation. But Job knows of no such person. Job can't come to the heavenly court to present his own case. He knows of no heavenly mediator who can present his case for him. So Job comes to the conclusion that all he can do is do what he has always done. He can hold fast to his integrity, to his blamelessness. He can continue to fear God and to turn away from evil for however many days he has left on this earth. Job 27, verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. And essentially in Job chapter 31, Job ends all of his speeches with that same wish, that same prayer, a chance to appear in the heavenly courtroom and be vindicated by God. A wish, it seems, that will never be granted. Now Job's friends, they continue to accuse him for the next six chapters, but then in chapter 38, a new speaker enters the dialogue. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Finally, God speaks out of a whirlwind. The whirlwind that crushed Job's children. And invites Job to enter into some kind of contest with him. The Hebrew literally reads, gird up your loins, and it refers to the way an Israelite man would lift up the excess cloth of his robe and tie it around his waist when he was getting ready to go to work or to go into battle. So God's speech is an invitation to strive, to battle. The Father God is going to wrestle with this new Jacob Israel named Job. Job 38, verse 4, God says, Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And God goes on for four chapters to speak of his intimate knowledge of his creation, of sun, moon, and stars, of sky and sea, of the animals that roam among them, especially the great and mighty beasts, behemoth and leviathan. It's four chapters of glorious poetry describing all the mighty works at which men wonder. And the implications are clear, aren't they? God is the one who created all things. He knows them intimately. He has mastery over them. He directs their way. All creation gives glimpse of the infinite depths of the wisdom and majesty and righteousness of God. 
Now, it's common to think that, that in this speech, Job, uh, God is rebuking Job for questioning him. That he does all this to sort of put Job back in his place, to, to take him down a notch, to humble his, this arrogant sinner. And, and I certainly see how it could be read that way. Now, others take a more positive approach. In his previous speeches, Job himself has said many of the same things that God says here. He has waxed eloquently about God's might and wisdom. He has never denied God's sovereign power, but rather affirmed it. So it's hard to see how God's speech could be considered a rebuke of Job when he has said the same things. Perhaps we should instead see God's challenge more like a father wrestling with his son on the living room floor. Right? It's a demonstration and a testing of strength, to be sure, but it's also an invitation into the Father's world. It's an invitation to learn what the Father is doing. And I think the hope behind it is that the Son, having been tested by this wrestling match with the Father, will grow and mature into even greater likeness to the Father. To grow and mature to become God's right-hand man, a faithful ruler in God's household. Right? We saw God do something very similar to this with Jacob Israel a few weeks ago. Perhaps this is what God is doing with Job. In chapter 42, we hear Job's answer to the Lord's four chapters of beautiful poetry. Now, uh, unfortunately, this passage is notoriously difficult to translate, so my version is going to be probably a little bit different from what your, your translation says, but this is my best attempt at the Hebrew. Job 42, 2 through 6, Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? To be sure, I have spoken about things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I have heard you with my ears and my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I rest my case, and I am comforted in dust and ashes. Again, I wish those last words were not so difficult to translate, but it seems to me the gist of it is this. Job admits there are things that God knows and does that are far beyond Job's ability to understand. Job has been granted an audience with the Lord, but not to present his case so much as to hear the word of God. And I think we can see that Job is humbly hearing that word and receiving it in faith. And apparently Job does find some consolation in the fact that God has finally appeared to him. I have heard you with my ears and my eyes have seen you. If nothing else, at least Job knows that God is there. That his prayers were heard. That God has not rejected him. God has some purpose in all this suffering. And it is not to punish the blameless man for sins he didn't commit. It is to bring his beloved son into the mysterious heavenly council and mature him to greater glory. But the Lord is going to rebuke someone. 
at uh, chapter 42, verse 7, the book turns from poetry back to narrative. After the Lord had spoke these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Finally, Job is vindicated before men, right? His innocence is now declared from heaven, just as he hoped. And this is one of the most important things I wanted to point out this morning. We talked about Job filling a kingly role, seeking and finding wisdom to rule. Here we see Job as prophet as well. Job is the only one in this story who speaks the truth about God, who speaks the true word of God. But like many prophets in Israel, Job's word is too challenging for his audience to hear, and so they reject it. They don't listen to him. But now God vindicates his prophet and he reveals to the three friends their folly. And he says they are to turn and to listen to Job as Job has listened to the Lord. The three friends have been telling Job how to repent and how to restore relationship with God. But now they find they are the ones who need to repent and to reconcile. And God graciously tells them how to do that. Verse 8. Now therefore... Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So they went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now we've seen this idea with Abraham and with Moses before. When the Lord, Lord's prophet prays to him, the Lord listens, and he acts, and he relents from destroying the people who have rebelled against him. That's what prophets do. They speak to the Lord on behalf of the people, and the Lord hears his prophets and acts according to their requests. You see, in his own laments, right, Job longed for an arbiter who could mediate between God and man, didn't he? Who could plead the righteous judge for his deliverance, but now we see the Lord putting Job himself in that role. God raises up his beloved son Job, matured through suffering, to be the glorified mediator, the arbiter between God and man. Verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord who has taken away now gives back. And this time he gives a double portion. And in Israel, the double portion was given to the father's firstborn son. God is treating Job as his firstborn son, his beloved son, the inheritor of his kingdom. And when God restores his son, it's never just a restoration to the old. It is always translation to a new world of greater glory and greater dominion. And so Job emerges from the grave a glorified priest, king, and prophet who has the ear of the Lord and who brings salvation to his people. And we've hardly scratched the surface of this incredible book, but in closing, I want to return to what I said at the beginning. The book of Job is another iteration of this single story the Bible tells over and over again. And we see this story fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus was truly blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
Though Job was a righteous man, as I said, he wasn't perfect in every regard. But we are told that Jesus was without sin. He is the only truly blameless man, the only spotless lamb acceptable to the Lord. And the Father presented his beloved Son for all to adore and sang his praises before the heavenly courts and before all creation. But Satan asked to have him, and the Father gave his Son into Satan's hand. The Father gave Jesus over to suffering. All that he had was taken from him. His flesh and bones were afflicted, bruised, and broken. His friends and brothers abandoned him. Those who gathered round to look upon his suffering accused him and mocked him. They rejected the words, the true prophet, and left him to die. And just like Job, Jesus did cry out to God in words of bitter lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The difference being that for Job, God did restrain Satan in this one regard. He said, he is in your hand, only spare his life. But when it came to his own beloved son, God did not spare him, but gave him up for us all. Job believed his suffering would send him to the grave, and Jesus' suffering actually did. Jesus actually went to the land of darkness and deep shadow that Job spoke of. But God did not abandon his beloved son, and from the deep darkness of the tomb, God unearthed a priceless treasure. The son who had suffered was resurrected and renewed in greater glory than ever before. And because Jesus has held fast his integrity and faithfulness to the Father, even unto death, the Father raised him up and seated him in the heavenly places. And there, Jesus has become true priest, true king, and true prophet for all the world. Even those who have rebuked and rejected him like us, falsely accused him and called him sinner, as we have, might now repent and turn to him as their mediator, the one who will reconcile us to God. He will pray for our salvation. Father, forgive them. And the Lord will accept his prayer and deliver us from death. For all the profound mystery of the book of Job, I think this simple story comes through crystal clear. And the good news is that as we are united to Jesus by faith, this story becomes ours as well. No matter the calamity and suffering God brings us in this life, we are to trust that there will come a day of vindication. Our Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. He will raise us from the ashes. And we shall finally see the whirlwind God face to face. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know your wisdom and power are infinite and we can never plumb their depths. Like Job, we are not able to reach you by our own power. We are not able to vindicate ourselves and we are not blameless. We are dust and ashes. So we give you thanks and praise for sending Jesus, our mediator, our redeemer, who took on our flesh, who suffered under your wrath 
that we might be saved from it, who shares his vindication and restoration with all who pray to him. So we ask that you make us to abide in him all our days, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.